so much. Yeah, thank you, Steve. This is the first of eight talks in the next seven days, so prayers appreciated. Um, if I start diving into a different talk by accident, it's because my brain is scrambled. Um, but really good morning to you, and thank you so much for coming. If you're here uh, for the first time, thanks so much for being with us. We just so appreciate you taking the time to be with our church family this morning, and it's just good to have you here. And uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Phil, and I'm one of the leadership team here at the church. And uh, how many of you were here last week to hear Simon's message? Such a brilliant, brilliant message on prayer. And it's just been a great, great week this week uh, as we've given ourselves to pray. And I just thought as Tim was just singing that song over the United Kingdom, I just that was such a powerful moment. It was like a reminder of the Lord to us. I, I think it it's my personal take that it should be illegal to complain about Brexit until you've bothered to pray about Brexit. And I feel like this is a season where God is reminding us, guys, this is the time for the church to shine brightly. We know how to pray. Your kingdom come on the earth as it is in heaven. We know the prayer of Jesus. And I would just be encouraging us in this season to be seeking the Lord's face. This is the time where the church should be right on the front line for our nation. This nation is our responsibility. I just want you just to, just to hear that. This nation is our responsibility. It's not somebody else's. It's our responsibility. The reason that you have been put on this planet is to be salt and light. Jesus says you are like a city on a hill that is shining brightly. That means that this nation is our responsibility. It's time for us to shine brightly. And so I would just encourage us to be seeking the Lord's face, particularly this next kind of month or so. It's a significant kind of month for our nation and I just felt Tim, Tim's song was just a reminder to us just to keep seeking the face of the Father that his kingdom would come. And as it happens, we're going to be praying tonight at 6 o'clock. If you're around for an hour, come and pray tonight at 6. We'll be praying up in one of the upstairs rooms. Just come and join us to seek the face of God for this nation. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Well, Lord, we just pray as we turn to your word that you would do us good. Lord, thank you that you always have good things to say to us, even if sometimes they may be challenging things, they may be counter-cultural things. Thank you that your word always does us good. And so, Father, as we come to the word of God today, as we come to these living words, we say, let them penetrate our hearts, let them penetrate our attitudes, let them penetrate our thoughts, let them change us, Father. We come to your word with faith, Lord. We come expecting good things today. Thank you that any child coming to their dinner table expects something good to enter their mouths. And Lord, we come as little children this morning and we expect something good for our hearts, something good for our souls. Thank you that this morning is the Lord's day. It's the day that you have made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. And so we say, come Holy Spirit as we come to the word of God. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, last week, Simon uh, stirred up a bit of a hornet's nest in my family because he revealed that for every mention that his children get in one of his preachers, they get a monetary reward. And so instantly, uh, the text started flying into my phone from my own kids. And uh, this is, I, won't, I won't reveal who sent these texts, but this is one of my children. And uh, as soon as Simon revealed that, one of my children said, we don't get money. Then the next text, you owe us a lot. <laughs> the next text, didn't realize we could work on commission here. <laughs> and then the next text was just pound signs. 
So uh, I owe my kids a lot of money, um, so I'm going to try not to mention them at all this morning. Um, so th- this morning, we are, we are in this series called... I just have, I know, I realize that. Yeah, darn it. Um, so we are in this series called Perspective, which is just a short series on how we can see things from God's vantage point. Do you understand that you and I have now been raised with Christ? Right, about three people realize this. Maybe I should preach that message instead this morning. You and I have now been raised with Christ. That means that you now see things from God's vantage point. You are no longer looking from earth to heaven. You are looking from heaven to earth. Yeah? You've been raised with Christ. In fact, you have been joined with Jesus. He is now your living head. Jesus sees everything. His eyes range the earth. He's the Alpha and Omega. He sees the beginning from the end. You are now seated with him. The body is connected to the head. What the head sees, the body acts upon. You now have God's vantage point. And that's really what this, perspective, this series called Perspective is all about. And so today I want to talk about those moments where God brings us to a divinely appointed T-junction in our lives. A divinely appointed T-junction. And if you've got a Bible, you might like to turn to John and chapter 21. And we are going to read some verses from there in just a moment. And uh, uh, this week, during the week of prayer, I felt God give me a picture for us as a church. And it was a very, very simple picture. And I could see God bringing us to a divinely appointed T-junction. Now, the T-junction, you've got a decision to make. You can't go straight on. You've got to decide, am I going to go left Or am I going to go right? And in this picture, I can see two doors on either side of the T-junction. On the left-hand side was a door with the word easy written over the top of it. And the door was already open. And I instinctively wanted to go through the open, easy door. (laughs) It seemed like the obvious option. But then on the right-hand side of the T-junction was a second door. And that second door was marked with the word impossible. And it was a locked door. And instinctively, again, I thought, the easy door feels so much more appealing. It's already open. I could just walk straight through it. And yet, when I looked around my neck, I realized that I had a key to open the impossible door. And what I felt God was saying, that he is bringing us as a church to a divinely appointed T-junction, where we have to decide again, are we going to choose the easy option, or are we going to choose the impossible option? Because how many of you know, now that you've been raised with Christ, now that you have believed in a Savior who was raised from the dead, you are now marked for an impossible life, not an easy life. Jesus is the pattern of what new humanity looks like. He's the pattern of what it looks like to be truly human, of what it looks like to be truly a Christian, the one who went through the grave and went the other side. He has called and enlisted you into the impossible. And this church got birthed because men and women made decisions to pursue the impossible. The only reason you're sitting on this seat today is that many people through the history of the church made the decision, we are not going to choose the easy door. We're going to choose to believe God and we're going to walk through the impossible door. Do you know this week we celebrated the 30th anniversary of the King's Arms Project? The 30th anniversary. That is an amazing milestone. And what I loved as we were praying for the project this week is just hearing them again say their, their mantra that they say again and again and again. We believe that there is no such thing as a hopeless case. And I love that after 30 years, the guys in the project, when they come to the T-junction, they are still choosing the impossible door. 
They're not looking at the easy door. They're saying, we believe there's no such thing as a hopeless case. There is no one too far from God. There is no one too addicted for God to come and set free. There is no one too lonely that can't find family. There is no one too far gone that God can't find them. And that is a sign to us. It's a sign to us as a church, as individuals. Would you choose the easy door? Or will you actually choose your divine destiny, which is to pursue the impossible? I believe God is bringing us to that point. There's a quote from John Wimber that I've just not been able to shake this last year. And this is what he said. He said, the economy of the kingdom of God is quite simple. Every new step in the kingdom costs us everything that we have gained to date. Every time we cross a new threshold, it costs us everything that we now have. Every new step may cost us all the reputation and security that we have accumulated up to that point. It costs us our life. And a disciple is always ready to take the next step. If there is anything that characterizes Christian maturity, it is the willingness to become a beginner again for Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? What's the sign of maturity? I'm willing to become a beginner again. (laughs) It's the willingness to put your hand in his hand and say, I am scared to death, but I will go with you. You are the pearl of great price. And I believe that is what God is calling us to. To say, I'm willing to become a beginner again if it means pursuing the impossible. If it means pursuing your promises. That's what God is bringing us to. And I believe the future of this church will rest on those kind of decisions. It will rest on whether we make those decisions to pursue comfort or whether to pursue the impossible call of God to change lives, to change a nation, to change neighborhoods, to change workplaces. That's the call of God. That's the greater thing. You've got a key put round your neck by Jesus that opens impossible doors. And the story that we're going to look at is one of those divinely appointed T-junctions that Jesus brings his own disciples to. And you can read with me in John chapter 21. The words will come up on the screen. And the context for this story is that Jesus has just been raised from the dead. The previous chapter in John 10, Jesus had appeared twice to his disciples. He's been risen gloriously from the grave, and they have seen him on two occasions. But this is an interesting little segue in the story. This is what happens next to Peter and a few of the disciples. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas also known as Didymus, maybe because he was small, I'm not quite sure. Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and, the t- and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. That's called the easy door. <laughs> Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered, probably rather glumly. He said, throw your net on the other side of the boat, the impossible door, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. 
Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus came to them and said, come and have some breakfast. Some of you are wishing that you'd had breakfast before you came here. Come and have some breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I love this story. Again, it's this contrast between this divinely appointed T-junction. Put your nets down on the one side of the boat, catch nothing. Put your nets down on the other side, catch a large haul of fish. So firstly, let's just think about the easy door. How did this step in this story for the disciples mark the easy door? Well, I believe the first thing is that they really were taking a step back into self-reliance. They decide to go back fishing. Now, in a sense, that may seem like a really, really innocent thing to do. And in fact, commentators on this passage are divided on what is happening in this story. Some commentators say, well... Peter was just kind of filling in the time between the resurrection and Pentecost, and he needed to earn a bit of money, and so he went fishing, and it was a very noble thing to do. Um, Other people say, well, you know, he just didn't want to be idle, he didn't want to be lazy, he didn't just want to wait around, and so he got busy, and he went fishing. Some people say that. But other people say that actually this was a crisis point for Peter. It was a moment where suddenly... He went back to doing the thing that Jesus had called him not to do anymore. (laughs) You remember the story. Jesus finds Simon, Peter, and his brothers. What are they doing when he first finds them? They are fishing. They are fishing in their family business. Jesus points them out and says, leave your nets. I am now going to make you fishers of men. And it says, at once they left their nets and they followed Jesus. Now, you've got to understand, leaving your nets was not just they were going for a day trip with Jesus. It means that they were leaving everything to follow him. They were literally, this was wholehearted. We are all in. We are leaving our reputation. We're leaving our security. We're leaving what our community thinks of us. We are leaving, some would say, our sanity because we are just all in for you, Jesus. We're leaving this because you said you're going to turn us into something different. We are now going to fish for people. We're not going to fish for fish anymore. We're going to fish for people. Doesn't it then seem bizarre that the very thing Jesus has said not to do anymore is the very thing that they start doing again? We're going to go out and fish. And my reading of this passage is that really they were in a moment of just uncertainty about how life was going to look anymore. Yes, they'd met Jesus. They'd been through a whole bunch. But I wonder if they'd hit this divinely appointed T-junction where they just thought, I'm going to go through door A. I know how to fish. I've been fishing all my life. This is what I'm used to. This is part of my identity. This is what marks me. I can do this easily. It's open. It's an open door for me. It seems remarkable to me that Peter, having thrown his whole lot in to trust Jesus, suddenly goes back to the thing that Jesus told him not to do. And I think he's going back to the door of self-reliance. I'm going to trust them myself. 
I'm going to rely on my own resources to get me through. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen next, so I'm going to do it myself. I think that's what he'd come back to. He'd come back to that decision point in his life. I am going to rely on myself. This is what Bill Johnson says. He says, large numbers of Christians are practical atheists who disbelieve in an active God. Let me just say that again. Large numbers of Christians are practical atheists who disbelieve in an active God. They wouldn't say it that way. No church's written doctrine would declare that there is no God. But believers face situations daily without bringing God into the picture. I felt convicted by that. I don't know how you're feeling right now. I felt convicted when I read that. Believers daily face situations without bringing God into the picture. They are professing Christians but live exactly like their atheist neighbors whenever they face a problem. They don't think to get God's counsel through his word or to invite God to intervene. Listen, if you hit a problem and you are no different to your atheist neighbor, something is broken that needs fixing. I have been many points in my life where I've hit a T-junction and instead of seeking God, I've dived into self-reliance as my first resort. And then I've had a light bulb moment where I thought, something is broken in me. That is not a normal response for someone who left everything to say yes to Jesus. Because if you didn't realize, the moment that you became a Christian, you did exactly what Simon Peter did. You left everything to follow him. You said, I, I'm, just, I'm leaving everything that I can have the pearl of great price. I, I'm leaving my old life. I'm leaving my old priorities. I'm leaving my old kind of uh, attitudes and beliefs. I'm leaving it all because I want Jesus. I am all in Jesus. Is you or nothing. That's what happened when you came to Christ. That's what being a Christian is. It's being a disciple who says, I am leaving my old life. And Jesus, I'm having all of me. You can have all of me for all of you. That's the transaction that took place. And yet so many times we can easily, if we're not careful, drift back to our old patterns of behavior where we functionally rely on ourselves rather than on Christ. And I'm not saying that God doesn't give us humanly gifts and resources to help us get through situations. But if our first response when we hit a problem is not to look upwards and say, Jesus, I need your help, then something's broken that needs fixing. You've hit a T-junction and you're looking at two doors. Do I go the easy door or the impossible door? You know, I have so many big and small examples of this in my life. You know, I just, I remember we bought one of those bike locks with a combination. You ever bought a bike lock with a combination and scrambled the numbers when you first bought it and then you don't know what a combination is? Anyone ever done that? Yeah, we bought this really expensive bike lock, like, and I scrambled the combination without remembering or writing down what the combination actually was. Now, it's just a trivial, silly example of, of kind of hitting a moment. My first response was to try and just fix it myself and, you know, find the combinations and, you know, go through all the codes that you use, you know, and just it wouldn't open. I'm like, oh, I've spent so much money on this thing. And Carol's there just sitting on the sofa smiling at me. And she's like, have you prayed about it? No. I mean, just to suggest that just felt annoying, you know. Have you prayed about it? What do you mean? It's a bike lock. What do you mean? She's like, let's just ask Jesus. Oh, all right, then. Lord, please help us to get this bike lock open. 
Next combination, open straight away. <laughs> I mean, it was almost annoying, like how straight away it opens. You know, I remember another time where my, my MacBook just died. I mean, just died. Like, I had, you know, the frozen screen of death and, you know, just nothing I would do. I was hammering the keys and, you know, rebooting and, ah. you know, I was like, everything, my whole life is on this thing. And again, Carol's just sitting next to me. You prayed about it. What? No, I haven't prayed about it. She's like, just ask Jesus. He'll fix it. Oh, Jesus. Laid my hands on the laptop. Please, <laughs> please fix my laptop. Turned it on, went on straight away. And I'm not saying that happens you know, that instantaneously every time we pray. But, but what I loved in those two moments was Carol's first response was, seek Jesus. That's what disciples do. They turn their face to Jesus. They say, I've, I've left everything to have you. Is that your first response? When you hit a problem, when you hit an obstacle, when you hit opposition... And then, of course, there's many reasons why self-reliance feels really appealing. Sometimes we do it because it cocoons us from disappointment. You know, if I rely on myself, I won't be disappointed. Sometimes why we do it. Other times we do it because it just enables us to feel in control. You know, if I feel in control of my own destiny, then I feel more comfortable. Rather than saying, Jesus, my life's in your hands. So sometimes that's why we dive into self-reliance. You know, I remember those days where I used to teach my kids when they're little to just jump off the stair and I would catch them. Any parents ever done that with your kids? You know, you get your kid on kind of step one, you're like, jump, daddy will catch you. And they kind of jump off. And then you, you tell them to go a step higher, like jump off. And by, you know, they're up seven or eight steps by the time you're finishing. And, and of course, at the start, they're a little bit hesitant, but they kind of learn to kind of really quickly trust that you're going to jump them. And then what happened with our kids in the end is they wouldn't give me any warning. They were just like, Dad, catch me. <laughs> I've got you, I've got you. you know? And, you know, there was no contingency plan for them. Plan A was, Daddy is going to catch me. That's just what's going to happen, because that's what daddy does. He catches me. No matter what stair I jump at, he's going to be there. He's going to catch me. No plan B. No contingency plan. Can I suggest to you that you should not have a contingency plan in your life for if God lets you down? Plan A is, Father, I trust you. I'm jumping into your arms. I know that you've got me. I know that you've got me. And that's easy door number one is self-reliance. Have you slipped back into that? Has prayer become a last resort? Have you stopped asking for help? Easy door number two is going back to ritual rather than relationship. We read this, that they went out into the boat and all night they caught nothing. Now what's interesting about this is these guys knew how to fish. So, you know, they were experts. This is what they did. And so they did what they had always done. They let down the nets on the appropriate side of the boat where they thought that they would catch fish because they'd done it a thousand times before in their life. And yet they caught nothing. I think for me, this is a picture of just drifting into a life where we just kind of do things out of methodology rather than relationship. We do things just because it's always the way that we've done them without actually knowing the Lord. <laughs> without actually walking with him, without actually hearing his voice, without actually having his face in our sights, drifting into religious ritual. And I would suggest to you that it's possible to be a Christian sometimes for years and just drift slowly into religious ritual and come to church and sing the songs and raise your hands and pay your tithe and go to a small group and yet not functionally actually know or love Jesus at all. 
Paul says it's possible to have a form of godliness but deny its power. It's possible to have a form of godliness, a religious form of godliness where you do the stuff, yeah, do 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 sing the songs, yeah. but actually deny the power. What's the power? The power is actually walking with Jesus. The power is actually knowing God, talking to him every day, allowing him to talk to you, walking with God. And so often we can just slowly drift from that into just doing the stuff kind of religiously, out of methodology. I thought Mickey's word was so beautiful during the worship time. It's easy just to kind of fake it. But Jesus is worth more than us just faking it. Sometimes we need to get honest and real and say, do you know what? All is not well with my soul at the moment. Somewhere I feel like I've got disconnected. And God, I'm coming back. I want you. I want the real. I want the genuine. That was such a powerful moment. You know, a relationship with God is like any fire in your life. It will go out unless you look after it. You know, the priests, if you, you can read it in Leviticus 6, the priests had a role. And one of their roles was to keep the fire on the altar alight. And God's instruction to the priests was, don't let this fire go out day or night. Keep it burning constantly. And so throughout the day and throughout the night, the priest's job was to stoke the fire and keep it alive. Why? Because it was a sign of the presence of God amongst the people of God. Their job was to look after the fire. And like the fire of any relationship, it will go out unless you look after it. Unless you look after it. No one can do this for you. You have to do this yourself. I'll suggest that most often the fire of our relationship with the Lord doesn't get snuffed out in a big storm. It gets snuffed out by the slow decay of neglect. Often when we hit a storm, our faith really comes to the fore. What's most dangerous is when you live a comfortable life and your faith just drifts and slowly decays because you don't look after it. And then after a few years, you think, why don't I love the Lord like I used to? Why am I not passionate for him like I used to? What's happened in me? What's happened in you is you've not looked after your fire. And you've relied on someone else to do it for you. You know, remember those days when we used to feed our kids? You know those days, you know, kind of they start eating solids and, you know, it's just messy. And just anyone in that phase right now? Spoon feeding your children? No one. Wow, that's amazing. And, and God bless you. And, but it's a messy phase, isn't it, when you start to feed your kids and teach them how to eat themselves, and there's just goo and mess, and there's the bib, and there's all the bits in the bib, and it's just like disgusting, and they're throwing food around. And, you know, and the goal of that feeding process is not that that carries on forever. The goal of that process is that eventually they learn to feed themselves. That's the goal of parenting in that moment is I'm doing this so that this won't go on forever. I want you to learn to use your own spoon and feed your own stuff. Otherwise, this is going to get very tiring very, very quickly. You know, and praise the Lord, my kids have become very accomplished eaters, like very accomplished. They got really, really good at it. And, um, you know, it's the same in your faith. You know, the goal is not that someone else looks after the fire of your walk with the Lord. It's that you look after it yourself. And the reason that we do things like this is to help us do what happens for the rest of the week, which is you walk with Jesus. You listen to Jesus. You don't do religious ritual. You love him. You recognize his voice. So what's the contrast to this? Just two things. 
The contrast as we move towards the impossible door, the first is marked by radical obedience. This is what we read in the next bit of the story. Jesus says to them, throw your net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. To choose the impossible door means to choose obedience to Jesus and his word. If you want to pursue door B, which is locked, that you have a key around your neck to open, it's going to take obedience to Jesus. Do you understand that God loves us all equally, but he favors us differently? He favors people that obey him. Let me say that again. He loves you all equally, but he favors us differently because he favors people that say yes. Someone's like, why is God not blessing me? Well, it might be that you're not obeying him. <laughs> it might be. It might be that you stop saying yes to him. The disciples, amazingly, just effortlessly step into this miraculous moment. It was the same waters, the same nets, the same boats, but this time they have Jesus' word, and suddenly they step into a miraculous haul of fish. What's different? They obey Jesus. <laughs> no, amazing. You know, I just, I, I'd love to know, were all the fish just hiding on that side of the boat? Like, well, you know, what was going on, you know, in nautical terms? Like, what was going on in the water? They just obey Jesus, and suddenly they step into the miraculous. They step into the impossible. It's effortless. They didn't make it happen. They just said yes. They just obeyed. You know, I don't know if you've come across this love languages test. Anyone love the love, the love, love languages test? So basically, the idea is that we, there are five love languages, and we all probably have a primary love language that we particularly respond to, so something that makes us feel more loved than the others. So there's five different categories. There's things like words of affirmation or physical touch or acts of service or gifts and quality time. There you go. That's the five. And so in our family, Carol, one of the ways that she feels love is acts of service. So if I want to love her, I just tidy the house. Like, it's just... You know, I know that's going to make her feel valued and loved. I'm just going to tidy. I'm just going like, to just get on and do some housework because she's going to feel really valued and loved by that. Do you know that God has a love language? And his love language is obedience. Let me prove it to you. John 15, 10 and 14. This is what Jesus says. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and remain in his love. Get this. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Do you want to be a friend of Jesus? Do you want to know his favor on your life? Do what he commands you. Not just some of the things that he commands you. Do the things that he commands you but letting the nets down on that side doesn't make any sense to me. That doesn't matter. Say yes to Jesus. Read his book. Find out what his counsel is in your life about money, about sexuality, about forgiveness, about relationships, about work, about relating to one another, about the church, about the world. Find out what Jesus says. Do what he commands you. That's God's love language. Because he knows that only in obedience do we truly become alive. God's not being a tyrant. He's being a father. And he understands that the way that humans thrive and flourish is by saying yes to him. That's why he wants you to obey him. It's not to serve him. It's not self-serving in that way. 
is actually out of love for us. The second impossible door was just wholehearted zeal. And uh, I love this moment in the story where Peter sees Jesus, gets so excited that he gets dressed and jumps in the water. <laughs> it was just like, ah, Jesus, put my clothes on, jump in the water. It just makes no sense. But, you know, this guy in this moment is just so, so transfixed on Christ that he's not even quite thinking straight. He's not thinking right. He's, I'm going to put my clothes on and then jump in the water. People usually do it the other way around. But, Jesus, I've just got to get to you. Where you are is where I want to be. And, in fact, we read the boat was only 100 yards from shore. He could have played it safe and stayed in the boat and stayed dry. Why jump in the water with all your clothes on? Well, I'll tell you why. He just had to be with Jesus. He's like, I cannot wait. I'm just all in. I'm not playing it conservative here. I, and that's not political. I'm not playing conservative here. I am just, I need to be with you. Where you are is where I need to be. And I don't care if I look undignified. I don't care if it looks uncomfortable. I don't care if people criticize me. Jesus, I want you. It's a moment of wholehearted zeal. And I tell you, if you choose to go after the impossible door, it's going to be marked by zeal for Christ. It's going to be marked by passion for him, passion for his kingdom. Romans, 11, Romans 12, 11 says this, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And can I suggest to you that zeal is not about being overly energetic or frenetic. Zeal in the Bible is having a single-minded pursuit of Christ. You could be long-term sick and not be able to get off your sofa and still keep your spiritual fervor. Zeal is not about lots of activity. Zeal is about my eye is single-mindedly on Christ. It's that prayer of Psalm 27. One thing have I desired, and this only will I seek, that I might dwell in your house all the days of my life, and that I might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That is zeal in God's terms. One thing, one thing, one thing. It's not about working harder. It's about saying, Jesus, I have one thing that I want. It's you. Can someone say an amen? <laughs> it's you. One thing have I desired. This is what I will seek. It's Christ. It's Christ alone. Charlene uh, Framingham brought this great word during this week. And she said that God was not calling us to be domesticated but wild. Not domesticated but wild. And we've got a little domesticated animal picture here, which I thought some of you would like. This is like the, there you go. I know, I knew that, I put that in for just for some of you, because I knew you'd like that. She said, God has not called us to be domesticated, but wild. And said, domesticated animals all have one thing in common. They all have an earthly master. But your master is God. Your master is God. He's not called you to be domesticated. He's called you to be someone who, like Peter, doesn't care if you're labeled undignified or a zealot, but just says, Jesus, I have to have you. I wonder if that characterizes your life this morning. And the outcome of this story, just as we come in for a landing, is just beautiful. The outcome is that they get to have breakfast with Jesus. <laughs> you know, the outcome of... Self-reliance and religious ritual was that they caught nothing and they didn't recognize Christ. 
You choose easy door number A, that's eventually where you end up. You stop being fruitful and you stop recognizing Jesus. But if you pursue the impossible door, which is about obedience, about zeal, you enter into true rest, which is living in the presence of God. Do you know that true rest is not the absence of activity, but it's living in his presence? Some of you are like, I'm just too tired to choose the impossible door. Well, if you're tired, this is good news. Because obedience and zeal bring you into true rest. It brings you into true peace. You get to eat breakfast with Jesus. You get to feed on the very miracles that his word produced in your life. You get to listen to him and sit at his feet. That's the fruit of zeal and obedience. And that is what God is calling us to as a church.